Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 75 of Impact Boom. My name's Michaela and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Matu Bush. Matu is currently doing an innovation residency at Fulton Clark based on the principles of anthropologist Clifford Geertz called Deep Hanging Out. Matu has a master's degree in public health and broad clinical managerial nursing experience, including work in Tijuana, Mexico, with Nobel Prize laureate Agnes Bojeju in international border aid and as emergency oncology intensive care nurse is a sexual health nurse practitioner. He has experience in elective surgery waitlists and management of specialist clinics. In his role at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, Matu focused on designing Michelin star waiting rooms to improve the patient experience, including pioneering virtual reality for distraction therapy in dental oncology, serology, and minor surgery clinics. Matu contributes to health system innovation through involvement with Better Care Victoria as a board member and the Emerging Leaders Clinical Advisory Committee. Matu is a member of the Health Informatics Society of Australia and the UX Community of Practice for Healthcare and mentors the next generation of undergraduate and postgraduate science students through the University of Melbourne Science Industry Mentoring Program. Matu founded One Good Street, which champions neighbour-initiated care for older residents in local communities. One Good Street explores the latent capacity of neighbourhoods to provide care in collaboration with hospital and primary care. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss how Matu believes design thinking can be used to create positive social change, along with some case studies and real examples. We'll get some insights and thoughts from Matu on how might your community or organisation best deliver sustainable social innovation and the roadblocks you might face along the way. The future of healthcare, aged care, and the role technology will play in the promotion of community impact. Matu is sure to share some inspirational initiatives and tips that you could perhaps apply to your own projects or to launch your own community initiative. So Matu, thanks so much for joining us. Wonderful to be here. So to start things off, Matu, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to design thinking, healthcare and the social impact power within local communities and some milestones you want to share? Sure. So I was studying fashion design when I was 19. And at the time, the Somalian famine was happening. So I would go from working on runways to TV in the evening watching dying kids. And I happened to be in a bookshop and I saw a book on Mother Teresa. So I wrote her a letter and said, essentially, I want to come and work with you. And she wrote back and said, come on over and start. So that was my first foray into essentially doing things in a very simple way with a great impact, with a huge impact. 
So I really learned from Mother Teresa for four and a half years on how to get shit done. I came back to Australia. I studied public health. I'm a nurse practitioner in sexual reproductive health. So I feel that I've always worked at the edges. Funny, I was looking for some design work that I did and I typed in patient journey, empathy journey, and it took me back to 2009. So it's something I've been doing almost as a native for that long. And I really think it is about putting myself in the shoes of others, especially when they're experiencing our healthcare system, with a real focus of how I can make it better just for one person. Because if I can do it for one, I can do it for 10. And if I've done it for 10 people, I've got a system, I've got themes, I've got things that I can polish up so that I can do it and deliver it for 100. So I understand you've been collaborating with your local community um, in Melbourne on a great initiative called One Good Street, which has been shortlisted for the QUT Seniors Living Innovation Challenge. Would you be able to tell our audience more about the topic and its social impact? One Good Street is looking at the capability that exists around older people. Often when people talk about innovation and senior care, there's a technology component. And they're often expecting the older person to learn or to use some form of technology. One Good Street's about a platform that encourages a participatory culture within the street itself. So street by street, we look at supporting their neighbours in giving great care to the older person that lives on their street. So this is done by a platform. We currently use Facebook because there's a thick market of activity on Facebook. Facebook is where a lot of communities come together and share advice, tips, give stuff away for free. So it's a brilliant way to gain access to a really thick market of social connectedness. One good street will accredit streets as being caring streets. We hope to give to the council a heat map of the best streets to live in if you're older really excellent and you know keeping on that theme of if you can impact one person you can impact 10 and more you recently collaborated with RMIT on a project called One Good Death stemming from a project within your organization the waves it has created on social media has been enormous and a discussion around DX or death experience design could you tell us more about it and its aims to shift the discussion around death and dying Death and Dying is a real passion for our CEO at Bolton Clark and he came to me asking if I would begin to explore a framework to produce the best end-of-life experience. So in true design fashion, I went to the design community and our first workshop was not filled with clinicians or palliative care physicians. It was filled with 60 design students and together we mapped out what one good death would look like. The students came out with amazing insights from vets that do better bereavement care than aged care facilities about the importance of curating a digital identity to pass on to family members once the person had died to compressing MP3 sound files of discussions around end-of-life care so that family conflict can be avoided. We got tangible, practical insights. So the students came up with some amazing design recommendations. We took that back to industry, funeral directors, vets, nurses, doctors, and it resonated with them. Mm. So expanding the type of people we bring in to solve problems in healthcare created a great solution. We are the problem custodians in healthcare. And people like who are naturally good at design are the solution custodians. So putting everyone in the same room really made a big difference. Death and dying is a global challenge and not just for Australia. And do you believe that using a design thinking process is one of the best ways to respond to global challenges? And if so, why? And 
Additionally, how do you utilise this tool differently within large organisations versus how you might use it in your community? That's a really good question. The methodology of human-centred design needs to be flexible. And the more you do it, the more you discern what aspects of it need to be at the forefront. The artefacts that human-centred design produces, for me, are secondary to the outcome of delivering change in clinician behaviour. So for me, the end game is changing the experience for a patient, a client, and the clinician or carer that they're interfacing with. That's the end game. Everything should lead up to that point and be mutually reinforcing to that point. One thing with death and dying, because it's a heavy subject, the normal methodology of post-it notes just was not working, of clustering and theming. It needed something different. So we use laser-cut shapes that are quite heavy and where participants in the mapping of the journey would gather around a table and use these objects, write on these objects and stack these objects. So it was a really different way to tangibly grapple with all of the stuff that gets in the way of dying a good death. In the community, what was really important was developing clear personas. So Vera is 100 years old. She has three months to live. How can you develop a good death for her or design a good death for her? So in the community, it had to be really structured, which is different from when you do it within an organisation where people have the corporate knowledge. They know the systems. So for them, it's a different type of, of mapping. Within organisations, often it's the first chance where people get to really explore and, and flesh out their frustrations with the organisation. It naturally comes up during process mapping and good facilitators are comfortable with that and know that's part of the journey of loosening the soil to get some creativity happening. And so within your current role within Bolton Clark, it gives you the ability to apply design thinking solutions and innovation into the Australian aged care industry. How do you believe the industry could utilise new technologies and design practice to keep up with you know, this increasing ageing population? It's absolutely critical that we expand our thinking. We span the horizons of what we think is possible. Our current thinking has only got us to a certain point. And currently, with the range of new technology, we need a discernment on what's going to work and an understanding about what is the best technology to help people live in their homes for as long as possible and hopefully die in place. We have to be the guide for older people and help them discern what is the products that are going to best suit them. Mm. Currently, we don't have enough evidence with all of the technology that's coming through in regards to the long-term outcomes. If you use this technology, sensors, artificial intelligence, machine learning, what is the benefit? It's all so new. It's a really exciting time to be in Asian community care. We're working with artificial intelligence, with sensors, with monitoring, but we haven't yet discerned or done the research to work out what gives us the most magnitude for the minimal dollar. So there's a real growing time for all of us in the sector. Design thinking helps us rapidly prototype. And that's not normally what we see in Asian community care. It's a conservative area. So to rapidly prototype something in an aged care facility, in a retirement village or out in the community is very, very new. But it is absolutely the way to engage in a workforce that really hasn't had a whole lot of love. There is an incredible amount of ideas and solutions out there from our staff that we have yet to uncover. And human-centred design just helps with that flow and loosening up our staff to letting us know what they think is going to help the lives of older people. And with these rapid changes within the industry, what, if any, advice could you provide for emerging designers who might consider moving into you know, designing for the aged care industry? 
So we like to say that when we're designing for the aged care industry, we're designing for our future. I would encourage anyone to jump at the chance of working in aged and community care, especially as a service designer, as a human-centred designer, as a UX designer. And what I would encourage you to do is work at the very edges and push your organisations to places that they're not comfortable with. And I think that's essential because you come with such a skill set and a vision. Don't sacrifice that at the altar of quality and risk or what is traditional for our organisation. We need people in Asian community care that stretch us to the very edge. And that's the only way we can continue to grow and deliver really radical new ways and new models of care that keep people in their homes for as long as possible, that reduce social isolation, that starts to value the contribution of an 80-year-old, of a 100-year-old person. And that's really important. And designers have that vision because they have empathy. Yeah, definitely. And really resonate with the idea of being able to to connect with, with the story behind the people you're working for mm. and you're designing for and connecting with their stories. So within your travels and, and your vast experience, what are some local initiatives and global initiatives you've come across that you believe are successfully tackling those wicked problems whilst maybe creating opportunities that provide social and environmental benefits? Look, a couple of things come to mind straight away. And one of them is the kidney matching exchange in the US. So that was uh, set up by economists who work in market design. And market design is really, really cool. So it looks at all of the forces that make up a marketplace. And especially in where they, we're not talking about money, we're talking about other goods. So in this uh, particular example, the, the good that was being traded was kidneys. So the economists in the US devised an amazing way of making sure that people get matched with potential donors. And they have the Nobel Prize for economics because they devised a solution, an algorithm that helped match so many people with kidneys and save thousands of lives. Design can save lives. So that's a really exciting one. And we were looking at how we can use the same type of thinking to reduce social isolation. Another one is called the no-lose lottery. And that is where we all have put in for savings accounts. And what banks do is offer the interest of all of our savings accounts in a lottery. So once a month, somebody is randomly pulled out of all the people that are involved in the scheme and given the money as a lottery. So it's actually, the odds are far better than ever winning a lottery. I've heard about linking that with health goals in regards to private health insurance or whether you want to lose weight or head to the gym. So when you hit your milestones in regards to your health goals, managing your diabetes, doing extra exercise, you then enter into a category of people that are more likely to win the lottery. So it really combines savings, obesity, increased exercise with something that humans love, and that's gambling. <laughs> so I love that sort of hybrid model. For me, new models of care happen when two unrelated areas start coming together. I actually think models of care is limited. It's really a marketplace of care because healthcare is so sophisticated. And when we're looking at behaviour change, we have to look at the complexity of what motivates people to change. So that's why I really like that uh, the no-win lottery. 
very interesting um, initiatives there. In your vast experience, and you've worked with Mother Teresa you know, as a clinical nursing career, to tackling waiting rooms, oncology departments, and, and now you're solving community-based problems. Thinking back on, on all of the projects that you've worked on, what are some of the challenges you typically experience and how do you work around them? It is really natural for people who have been working in the area to want to protect their place of righteousness. So when I come in with virtual reality and tell nurses that they need to use this when they're doing painful wound dressings, they're naturally going to protect the way they work because they're defending what they feel is important to them. So one thing I have learned is try to engage in their place of righteousness, why they're defending that territory, and equally asking them to engage with me in my place of righteousness. I want to improve the client experience. I want to improve the patient experience. This makes a difference. And if I empathise with them and look at their resistance and categorise their resistance to change as part of the change process, that we're actually on the journey now of change because the resistance is part of that, and engage in their place of righteousness to understand why they're defending that. Start to tease that out. Tell me about why this is important to you. Why are you defending that? And then you get the root causes around why there's resistance to something new. It's about reframing that dynamic. So it's not us and them, or they're resistant, we've got something new and amazing, but constantly driving empathy in everything we do as designers. What do you think are some of the best ways to measure the social impact of a project once it's been implemented? That's a really tough one. There are major metrics around hospital presentations, there are um, happiness scores, there are resilience measures. They're all part and parcel, but for me it is if somebody thinks of themselves differently. So the latest thinking around behavioural change is that we often don't do what we want to do, such as give up smoking eat better, do a whole lot of exercise because we don't see ourselves as different. And this is one of the things when we work with personas is that when we want people to behave differently, they actually have to change personas because when you see yourself as a different person, it opens up the possibilities of behaving differently every single day. So that's why it's so important for me to look at how people see themselves in their role, especially in the workplace, how someone who is unwell sees themselves. And if they change their identity, then we've got behaviour change that will last. What advice would you give the budding social innovators and entrepreneurs, or even those who are currently working within large organisations listening along, who have an idea, but they need to take action to expand and create greater impact? I would say you have the power to create the game. So when you're new in a large organisation, it can be overwhelming. If you've got an idea trying to protect it, wrap it in cotton wool and let it survive the first round of meetings, it's hard. But realise you have the capacity to create the game. Using social media, profiling your idea, canvassing, back-channeling, working on a coalition of people that are invested in doing things differently, you can change culture. There's a great line that says culture eats strategy for breakfast, but there are three meals in a day and you have to eat resistance for lunch. <laughs> You've got to learn to find nourishment in it. So get in the game. Don't be frightened off and realise that you too have the power to create a certain dynamic within large structures. I think that's the glory of large structures is that they, they're not aware of everything that's going on. You can create pockets of goodness. Be micro-ambitious. Stay with the micro. So... 
in your travels and through your experience, what countries do you believe are leading the charge when it comes to the support and implementation of social innovation programs that transform communities and what could we learn from them? This question probably gets answered a lot. People talk about the Scandinavian countries, Japan. So I'm going to take a different tact. For me, it's New Zealand and the island nations, including East Timor, where you have a focus on community because of the indigenous populations that is really strong. So you see the client is the tribe or the client is the extended family. So notion of client and engagement is far more inclusive. They also, if you think of East Timor, Papua New Guinea, a lot less resources. So they have to be incredibly creative. So using the trucks that drop off Coca-Cola or through PNG Highlands to also deliver antiretrovirals for HIV. So that's the exciting stuff. The diabetes management, the weight loss, obesity management in children in New Zealand shows how schools can be the primary drivers for healthcare of the future. So I think New Zealand and especially the island nations and definitely East Timor, Papua New Guinea, have tremendous things to show us. And also locally in Outback, how in an area where the geography is so great, how we are incredibly creative about delivering healthcare in those areas. So I would look locally, and I think that's important because what happens in Japan as a monoculture and in Denmark and Sweden, they're very different cultures. And it worries me when we take a robot that somebody developed for dementia patients in Japan and then we start purchasing them for our aged care facilities here in Australia when we've got dogs in pounds for $350 who will meet their end if somebody doesn't adopt them. So I think they're really important how we translate that stuff in and also that we're aware that geographically isolated innovation can sometimes just be a media campaign and it's not necessarily the future of healthcare. So to finish off, could you recommend some great books, and I'm just going to add this in here, maybe even some podcasts, that you think would inspire our listeners? Well, I get up every day and listen to you, Michaela, on your podcast <laughs> on Impact Food. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm really getting a lot from Alvin E. Roth's Who Gets What and Why. So it's about the new economics of matchmaking and market design. I think market design is a higher level of understanding of system design. There are a lot of great system designers, but get in a helicopter and go higher and see it from the lens of a marketplace. Mm. Podcasts, I'm really into Freakonomics Radio, but also Malcolm Gladwell. Yep. And History Revisited, it is how he articulates the nuances of history, of politics, that gives you deep insight into what could be going on Beyond the noise, what can you hear? So I take a lot of what he says and starts thinking, how can I apply it in my local context? What am I not hearing? Or what if I put my ear to the ground, what's the real story? Yeah. Matu, we thank you very much for your generous insights. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing where some of these projects go, especially One Good Street. I think it could make an enormous impact to every suburb in, in Australia. So we thank you for your time. Pleasure. You take care. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.